0: I'm here today with an interview with Karen Dunscombe. She um, is a social justice activist and we had connected and started talking about some of the work that she does and and kind of cross-fertilizing and just kind of sharing ideas and I thought it would be worthwhile to kind of get um, her take on some of the work that she's done and really around the power of intention and how powerful that can be in terms of dealing with some of the issues that we have to uh, work with today. So, Karen, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today.
1: Um, Hi, Jim. I am very happy to be here. You're more than welcome.
0: Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your your background?
1: Um, I'm actually a university professor. I taught college English. Freshman composition, exactly, primarily, um, for 40 years. Uh, My quest for social justice started when I was in high school. Um, I started high school in 1968. The year prior to that, a young man from my hometown had been um, in the arm um, and had been given a, the Medal of Honor. And so it, it made a huge impression on me. I was, what, 15, 15 years old. It, and um, one of my teachers, well, the history teacher, um, started me on the road to social justice, and at times, it was primarily protesting um, the Vietnam War. Um, when I went to college, that continued, but I got involved in other areas of social justice, primarily poverty. and.
0: Okay. So you were talking about poverty? Well,
1: I was. Um, poverty wasn't a big issue in the 1960s and 70s. But I live in Colorado. And Colorado is a place where migrant workers, um, they have regeneration. And so I started working then, I was just out of college, and I started working with migrants at that time, just making sure that they had food and they had a place to live, and, you know, that things were were good with them. And as I moved forward, I was married, my first husband was a police officer, and The, the migrant issue became kind of null. No. It, it wasn't a real issue at the time. And so I started working with um, women involved in, in domestic violence. Because my husband was a police officer, and he he thought that there needed to be someone dealing with, with these issues. And... So I started studying psychology. Hmm. I later went back to school and and got my master's degree or my my master's degree in English so that I could teach at the college level. And so I I actually went back to teaching and kind of let the social justice issue fall by the wayside. Um, In the mid-80s, I started working at Regis University, which is a Jesuit university in Denver, Colorado, and I don't know how many people know this, but the Jesuits um, are committed to social justice on various levels, and this is where I, I started really, truly getting involved in the issues that I'm involved in right now and my primary issue at this point is homelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, If if you read the headlines every day you see that homelessness in in various states in various cities is growing and there's the police are coming and sweeping them off the street and stealing their their material goods and So, it has gotten to be a real problem, and it is a problem from two different standpoints. The first one is that there are so many homeless people, so that goes back to relating to jobs, lack of jobs, incomes that are too low. Um, In California, there are people who have jobs at Disneyland, for example who are living in their cars Mm -hmm. or jobs at Amazon. And that happens in, in Denver as well. There are people who have jobs at Amazon who don't make enough money to actually afford the rent. The next issue is that rents have gotten so much higher. And the final issue is that it is a legal issue. Homelessness is a nuisance. But the police do very little to, to help alleviate it, and the shelters are not cooperative. There was a young man in Boulder, Colorado a year ago on um, Christmas Eve. He had been a resident of the shelter in Boulder on and off. and. They had a, a schedule. You had to be here at a certain time. And he was two minutes late on Christmas Eve. It was below 32 degrees. They turned him away and he froze to death.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, that was. His name was Benji. They now have a, a law It refers back to Benji's law. But uh, this continues. Uh in Denver, in Boulder. In, in the large cities everywhere, in in Los Angeles, um, and and you can see this if you just go on Facebook, you can you can see mm-hmm. that homelessness is a, a true issue. Yeah. The problem, another problem, is that it now involves children. Yeah, we have this idea that homeless people choose to be there, um, that they are drunk, that they're drugged, that you know, they're lazy, they they can't, they don't want to find a job, they just want to live off the government. And that is not even true. As I just mentioned, there are all kinds of homeless people who have no place to live. Yeah. There was a, a young lady in the Midwest, I think this was in Cincinnati, a couple years ago, who froze to death in her car because she was between jobs. She just lived in her car going from job to job and she froze to death in her car so that is where i am now i Hmm. was um for a while i was the mayor of a small town so i have insight into the government issues and what they deal with but i also have great compassion for the people who are homeless because i was there for a little while
0: so as a as a politician, then, how do you bridge that gap between kind of creating services to help those people who are in need of housing and kind of the role of the government to kind of maintain order, so to speak?
1: Well, civilians like myself um, do... Various things. Um, one of them is just advocating, and advocating involves going to city council meetings, and you know, saying what you have to say. One of the great things about the democracy that we live in is that all citizens, although most don't do this, all citizens have the right to attend meetings, unless there are special sessions that are closed or something anybody can go to a city council meeting and speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you can meet privately with city council people or the police chief or or people who run the homeless shelter. It doesn't do a great deal of good sometimes, but sometimes it makes a big difference. Um, and so that is what I do at this point, but... I'm also in process of developing a nonprofit that will work instead of reactively, like everything we've talked about to this point is reactive. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, well, I'm homeless now, what can you do for me? Or look, you're homeless on the street, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move you on down the road and take your tent so you don't have any shelter. Um, but what I'm doing is developing a nonprofit that will eventually be a fund that will intervene in any way needed to keep people from going homeless, especially people with children, the elderly, mm. people who are handicapped or disabled, <coughs> um, um, and, you know, not only provide them like possible housing or money to pay the rent that they need to get into a place or you know referring them to counseling or whatever it is they need to keep them from going homeless.
0: Hmm. You, so it's kind of like a like food banks operate with around the issue of trying to alleviate hunger. Exactly. So, is this something you you intend to kind of start off on a small scale in in Colorado where you're at, or like what's what's the game plan, so to speak?
1: Well, my game plan right now is, is to just get enough money to pay for the 501c3. Um, because I can't ask for donations if I don't have a 501c3. Yeah. So, that, that is step one. But I would like to start out nationally. I have a page on Facebook. It's called Corey's Compassion Angel. And um, you found me on Facebook. And mm-hmm. we live uh, thousands of miles apart. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it would be great to start in Colorado. And we would certainly will do that. I mean, I, I live in a little town called Palisade. Um, but you know I've been talking to a homeless guy who lives up by the river or he did until last week when the river crested from the runoff wow um, but um, so I have I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of person I, you know it's great to help tiny little pods of people but what I would like to do is make it big enough so that it really impacts people across the country.
0: Well, there's, I mean, the scale of the problem is is so immense. I mean, and and just for context, I mean, we have this growing um, issue of homelessness in what's claimed to be the greatest economic expansion of, you know, modern America, Um Underneath, when you scrape that, though, underneath the statistics around how many people are literally one paycheck away from being homeless or not being able to make rent or feed themselves. I mean, the, there's a immense number of people who are on the edge. When we get to the point of the next recession, I mean... I don't think people appreciate the scale of the problem that's going to exist when you have that many people that that severely economically affected.
1: It's true. And it's it's actually starting now. Yeah. You can't the average rent in Colorado the I live in a rural area, so the average rent where I live is about $1,200 a month. Um, in Denver, it is higher; it's $1,500 a month, basic rent. Um, and jobs are remaining at minimum wage, seven fifteen an hour. Congress is not moving to increase the minimum wage. Some states are, California has, and Colorado is looking at it. And I think a lot of the states that turned blue, that turned Democrat in the last election, are are seeking to address the minimum wage issue. But still, that you can see, if you have any mathematical skill, that you can't pay $1,200 a month rent if you have one job and you're making $7 an hour yeah. so it's, it's with us as we speak and it's only going to become worse as we move forward
0: yeah the um you know I saw it recently somebody had written a, a statement where you know the problem is that people are um demanding higher pay and the problem, more clearly stated, is that companies are demanding that people work for too little. And basically, wages that are obviously not livable. Um, so it, it really is a matter of demanding that companies act responsibly for the people that are in their
1: care. Well, And, and that is true. In this country, things were very bad. I was talking to a person yesterday who was complaining about the union. And I said, well, you know, you're off on Saturday and Sunday because of unions, and <laughs> this gentleman is was injured on the job, and he is on workman's compensation as we speak. Hmm. I said, you wouldn't have workman's compensation no. if it weren't through yeah And the problem is, is that the major corporations, and this this includes Walmart and Amazon, and the big oil companies don't want to allow unions because unions demanded things of them that they don't want to provide, like a living wage or health insurance or any of the other things. That made life really livable in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, and those are all going away at this point because uh, those big corporations, the Walton family is the richest family in the United States, and the president and Congress just gave them billions of dollars in in free, you know, tax-free living. And they're not throwing it back into the economy. Yeah. They're not raising wages. They're not offering more jobs. They're not offering better jobs. And they're still shipping the, all the jobs overseas. And that's a big issue.
0: Well, one of the other um, things that's occurring, and it's, it's, I would say it's even a bigger issue for what you would classify as really middle-class jobs, you know, jobs that earn eighty to $100,000, $150,000, a lot of those jobs, instead of being W-2 positions, what I've seen in the past number of years is companies have basically um, offloaded those jobs to contractors and turned them into contractor positions to where they
1: have. the
0: employee still has a job, although they're a contractor instead of being W Two'd. But what that does is then they don't have the benefits of that company. And the company has kind of has basically shed a lot of expenses associated with the individual employee. But that employee typically does not pick up those benefits on their own, is what I've found. And so you end up with a lot more people being without health insurance, without any sort of life insurance, without disability, without even any sort of um, retirement planning. Um, And then to really, you know, the icing on the cake is when you're an independent contractor, it takes a different mindset in terms of tax planning. And a lot of those people are not setting aside enough money when it comes due to... Time to pay taxes. Um, whereas if they were in a W-2 position, it would be more easily um, the money set aside and, and taken care of. So I mean, there's a number of issues that really create and kind of um, a more create a more fragile situation for workers, no matter what uh, level of society there are. You know, it's not just you know, people who are poor. It's it's really everybody that's at stake here.
1: It is, and in fact, I was one of those people. Mm. Um, most <laughs> most of my teaching career, I was an adjunct professor. Um, adjunct professors are are some of the people that you're talking about. These are all people who have a good education for the most part, mm-hmm. and um, it is, it is really difficult to live. At one point, this was, I actually later on got on full-time at a university because I was an administrator. But at one time, I was teaching simultaneously at five different schools. Wow. And I had a part-time job as a real estate secretary.
0: So you had times. six jobs at one time, really?
1: I did. And And wow. I, I was making... I was probably making fifty thousand dollars a year.
0: And that's with an advanced degree. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have I, I had a master's degree. I have hours toward a PhD, but I, I am A B D on the PhD. So yeah. There was a masters degree and lots of experience. So
0: Yeah. I mean I, I see that a lot, you know, people who are basically, um, you know, the system has really been reinforced over the past, I I would say, five to ten years to really discount the um, education that people are getting. If They force people to get higher levels of education, but then people do not receive the compensation to be able to um, make it worthwhile. You know, I see that so often.
1: It's true, and it, it's it's one of those. I mean, it, it all comes back to to philosophy, and there's the thing is, you know, we want people to be smart, but we don't want them to be educated.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I know that sounds really weird, but that is kind of kind of the deal. So you have a, a small university. That wants a football team, and so they hire 10 people to teach freshman composition, and they save a whole lot of money, and they recruit really good football players.
0: Yeah, but those ten people who are educating the uh, students, you know, they're obviously not in a position of financial security.
1: No, no, it is, and I'm going to take a wild guess here. I'm going to guess right now that at least 50% of the professors across the country are adjunct. And some of, some of these people have PhDs or, or doctorate level education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, and you also, when I was I was teaching in the Denver area, I was driving all the time because the schools are, you know, situated all around the town. So I was spending a lot of money on gasoline. Yeah. And and fast food because you know I couldn't go home to eat because I had to be here there. And it, it is a very difficult way to live. But I you know, there are other people who are doing that too. I I was talking to a guy the other day who's a plumber and he works for a big plumbing corporation and he's an adjunct plumber. Hmm. So they call in when they have a job and otherwise he's just waiting for a job.
0: Yeah. And it's not like you can take a full-time job elsewhere if the, you're doing that, because you got to give up one or the other, so...
1: Yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, I, I think some of those people up there who have a lot of money had a lot of time to think of ways to mess with the system.
0: Yeah.
1: To put it lightly.
0: Well, we'll going back to the issue of homelessness, um, you know, what I think is interesting is when you look at like this movement towards over the past five years, uh, tiny homes and kind of this movement towards minimalism and kind of the desire to live a simpler life. But the reality is a lot of Cities around the country are basically making laws which make it impossible to have tiny homes. It, you, there are minimums in terms of square footage that are required to have someplace certified to be a living space. Um, so, in some ways, the, and I don't know, maybe, I don't know what the Driving force, my the cynical person in me would say that you know home builders are behind, you know, an effort to limit the options of what people can choose as far as their their homes. But I mean, what's your take
1: on that? It it certainly is the real estate business to a larger extent. Um, Developers. And in fact, there's a big <laughs> there's a big to do in Denver about it as we speak. in fact, the, the city of Denver allotted a space on which they could place tiny homes and allow some of the homeless who had jobs and and some stability to live in a tiny home village. Mm-hmm. The problem is, that nobody wants, you know, it's a NIMBY thing, not in my backyard, <laughs> nobody wants a tiny home village in their vicinity, because part of it is, is that people think that homeless people are vagrants, which mm-hmm. some of them are, but most of them in this day and age are just people who have nowhere to live. Mm-hmm. Um, they have actually moved to this tiny home village three times, and they moved them last week and they say this is you know, this is it, this is gonna be it, and I'm waiting in a month, you know, oh we're gonna to have to move the village again. Mm. And you know, I I think people I think what we need to do, maybe not tiny homes. Tiny homes are great. I wouldn't mind living in a tiny home. But We need to do something more at the community level, where where communities don't dismiss people who Mm -hmm. are in need, but embrace them and work together to solve the problem. But that doesn't make the realtors rich or the developers. Um, While it might solve problems with the community, then you're... You're always going to get back into that thing. Uh, I I think one of the worst things that has ever been imparted is homeowners (laughs) associations. You know, you get homeowners associations, you have a, a community, and then you have a homeowners association and two or three people who didn't have any power when they were younger get elected, and then they... They bully everyone else in the community, and then there's a fight, and then the police come, and you know. So you got to find a way to create communities that are self-sustaining and able to function without all of the the modern amenities of government and people who are looking to make them a little money, or a lot of money. It's usually a whole lot of
0: money. Well, the reality is that com- building community is actually the solution to a lot of social problems, right? I mean, it actually, it it is the source of overcoming not just homelessness, but any number of other issues around mental health, around stress, around abuse. Um, all these because different I- things can be you know, in some way, ameliated by having a support structure, and the reality is, over the past, you know, 40, 50 years, we've had that support structure decimated by people having to work two, three, four, five jobs and not being able to pay attention to the kids um, in terms of what the kids are learning and. You know, you're, you're working in a system that is at odds with really human happiness. You know, human happiness and maximum profit do not match up as twin goals. I mean, there has to be a Let's trade-off go. between um, making sure that people are able to stay human and be happy and be fulfilled and what a company is able to make based on what they provide as a service or a product to the economy. You know? That service or that product is not the end goal of the economy. It's the life of the people.
1: You know, and that is very true. And I don't know where we lost that. I I'm old enough <laughs> To have grown up in in a small, isolated community. Um, that was everything you just described. It was, you know, it wasn't idyllic particularly. It, it's at ten thousand feet above sea level, so it's harsh. Mm-hmm. It's harsh living at ten thousand feet above sea level in the winter in the Colorado Mountains. But there was one company. This was always a mining town. So mining was always the thing and people who came there were pretty much miners. But there was a molybdenum company that employed almost everyone in town. And, you know, people worked out for each other and they looked out for each other and if something happened, everybody pitched in. Um, I remember a couple emergency issues when I was just a little kid. One was a... Um, avalanche that was about 15 miles down the road at a smaller community and they closed the mine and they sent all of the people who were working that day down to twin lakes and they started digging for the people who were buried wow and you know uh, there was a couple big fires and you know it wasn't just the fire department the four or five guys who were on the fire department Everybody who was free, men at least, went to fight the fire. And, you know, there were different churches. People had all kinds of various religions. But in the summer, they would have these festivals, and everybody in town would come to the festival and contribute and participate. And it was, you know, there's nothing like that as much anymore. I I really... Miss that, but it is kind of what drives me to move forward toward building
0: community. Yeah, in some ways, I'm I'm reminded of um, I think it was Rousseau's uh, social contract. You know that there's you know there exists within um, nature a contract, uh, a social contract where people learn how to or agree to get along for the maximum good. And somewhere along the way, any sort of idea of a social contract has basically been shredded for the benefit of, you know, a corporate contract. Yeah, so it's,
1: it's true. And, you know, they've tried on and off throughout the people with money have tried on and off to do this. If you read Charles Dickens, um, you will see that that is all that Charles Dickens really talked about. Yeah. He has really delightful characters, you know, but if you just look at the Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge was the guy that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and Bob Cratchit was the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And so it, it comes and it goes. We, you know, we, we left off the Victorians and we kind of got some unions going and. You know, we did some things, and then, you know, the big corporation said, well, we don't want these people to strike, so they created professional sports. And then, you know, we got down into the 30s, and we had another depression, and, you know, we had to have a war to finish that one. And we keep going back and forth. It, it seems like the social contract always gets lost in somebody wanting to be in power or making money. And I think that is exactly what is taking place in the United States today and probably across the world. If you look at France, if you look at Canada, it's, you know, in Germany, it's all kind of taking place. The UK, Brexit thing. That is all the driver, is power and money. And well, we've got to find a way to reverse it.
0: Well, the challenge is in the, current, in the current age, we're also dealing with climate change. And climate change is in the process of changing the economy. And if anything, I think one of the things that you see happening is climate change changes societies because it really people are not used to dealing with the changes that are taking place, whether it's, you know, entire towns being destroyed or having, you know, the food uh, supply suddenly go up uh, in price and people not being able to feed themselves. Um, You have breakdown of um, social interaction, so you have people being more... Um, subjected to violence, whether it's because of race or religion or whatever other dividing force. And, you know, at the end of the day, those kinds of environments drive down profits for companies. And so companies become more desperate and more, you know, in some ways um, abusive to the labor that they have within within their company. And so we have to recognize the changes that are taking place and see that we have to kind of take an active role in the creation of something better. Because it's not just going to happen on its own.
1: That's true. And, and we have to, all of us need to address this. But I'm, you know, we all know that it's not going to be all of us that are going to do that. There are people who cling to the old ideas. You know, there are people who don't realize that Nebraska is underwater. Yeah. And, you know, they're usually growing things like wheat yeah. over there, which we need to put in bread, and that is what we eat. And, that, you know, I mean, all you have to do is look at the news and, and see what all these things are doing, but there are possibilities at hand that may allow us a small number of people to actually push the envelope and reverse all of that if we are dedicated
0: to doing it so what would be your advice to somebody um, today who's listening to this like what what what's a takeaway that they should uh, get from this program to make a difference
1: I would say first thing to do is just get involved in your community. Um, if nothing else, get to know your neighbors. Mm. I am, I moved to Palisades um, two and a half years ago. And um, I had lived in Denver or in, actually, I lived in a little town outside Denver called Bennett. And so I interacted with my little community there. But, Most people don't talk to the guy who lives next door. And since I live in Palisades, I have a dog and she's, she's a Siberian husky. (laughs) It's just got more energy than, than you can imagine. And we walk around town. The town is about a mile from side to side and a mile and a half long. And we just walk every day and I just talk to people. And that is amazing. Just talking to people who are there because they're there. I I talk to a lot of dog people, but I also sit in the park, and, you know, I talk to old ladies, and I talk to little kids, and that is the way to start is just talk to people that are there in your community and then get involved in the community. Join a club. Join the Rotary. uh, Go to church. Um... Go to a yoga class. Mm-hmm. Just and then you know, you have everybody has to be an activist and so you have to have ideas and you have to implement them. So if you have an idea and let's say you want to start a oh, I don't know, a bicycling club. Um you need to go to the rec department and see what to do. You know, go to the city council meeting and ask the city council, would this be okay if we do this? And then, you know, you go to the Department of Recreation and, you know, you, you just have to start small and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if everybody gets involved, the other thing that we need to do is find a way to get past the things that divide us right now. The thing that is dividing us is liberals and conservatives, which is just really strange. I mean, it it kind of falls along the lines of Democrats and Republicans. But people down here on the street aren't talking about Democrats and Republicans. They're talking about, oh, those horrible liberals. And, you know, man, those conservatives are really mean. And we have to get past those dividing places. We have to, you know, we have to build some bridges so that we understand that we're all facing the same fate, and that if we work together, if we are really committed to working together, we can fix the problem. We don't have to wait for Congress to do something. Yeah. We can do it right here, and yeah. Congress is not likely to do anything anytime soon.
0: Well, Congress would be more along the lines of, there go my people, I have to lead them. So let me chase after them. Yeah. Hmm. Now that's great advice. And I mean, it all goes back to, like you said, uh, early on, building community. And how do you build community? Talk to people. Get connected to people. That's
1: that's right. I mean, I have found some amazing people Mm -hmm. here. And before I was working, I was always working, if I wasn't teaching a class I was grading papers and you know I just kind of stuck to myself and uh, now I I actually like retirement, I love retirement because I'm not always on the clock, I'm not always thinking how far from where do I have to drive and what time am I going to get there. And is somebody going to be using the copy machine or whatever the case may be? Now, I have time to interact with people on the internet, which is how I, you found me. Mm You found me on the internet. Um, Or, you know, talk to my neighbors. And, you know, that that is the kind of thing. I actually got one of my neighbors up the street. Um, her husband is a retired Marine, and we were talking one day, and she says, he's worried about the homeless people. Do they have enough to eat? <laughs> and So I, I said, well, I think that the city has made them move down to Grand Junction so they, they can go to the shelter, but the, I, I told you I was talking to the guy who was living in a tent down by the river. I, I went up and, and talked to the gal, and I said, you know, does your husband want to get involved with this and I said, you know, there's this little gentleman who's in his dog. He was a little dog, living down by the river. And I thought maybe your husband could go down there and talk to him. And he did. He hmm. went down and and, you know, started interacting with this guy and you know, I haven't seen him down there actually, so maybe they got him a place to live. Awesome. That would be awesome. I'll have to follow up on that. I didn't I haven't talked to her recently, but
0: very cool. If, um, we've actually gone way over our, uh, our time, but uh, it's, it's entirely worth it. Um, Karen, if somebody wants to talk to you uh, more about uh, the work that you do, how can they reach out to you?
1: Um, there are a couple groups on Facebook that would be most appropriate to our topic, and anybody on Facebook, these are open groups, um, anybody can get involved. Um, one of them is the the website for the coming nonprofit called Corey's Compassion Angels. C O R I apostrophe F Compassion Angels. And the other one is a, a, a closed group. You have to ask to be in. You have to ask to join. But it's called Ten Thousand Hearts for Peace. Okay and
0: there's a story times the 10,000... Very cool. All right, well, um, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat today, and, you know, depending on how things go in the uh, in the fall, I mean, I'd love to to do this again and kind of reconnect and see if we've made more progress.
1: That
0: would be awesome. I would love to. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to
1: chat, Karen. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.